Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It isn't easy being rejected. Maybe you really wanted that new job. You put a lot of work into applying for it. You thought that you had a good interview, but someone else got chosen instead. Perhaps another time you thought someone was really the love of your life. You would have done anything for him or for her, but he or she didn't feel the same way and your heart was broken. Maybe you'd practiced real hard to make a sports team or the cast for a play, but when the final list got posted, your name wasn't on it. Putting our best effort into something only to have someone else tell us that it's not what they're looking for can deeply hurt us. It can cut us to our very core. The Son of God was no stranger to rejection. Throughout the entire Old Testament, one generation after another rejected God's love, God's grace, and God's promises. When God came down to interact with his people as the angel of the Lord, or when he spoke through his appointed prophets, his messages and his warnings were just as likely to be ignored or ridiculed as they were to be accepted. His human mother wasn't provided a decent place in which to give him birth. An earthly king who feared him tried to destroy him. The people of his own hometown tried to drive him off of a cliff for speaking about who he was and what he had been sent to do. Even so, he persevered. The rejected prophet, the rejected son, the rejected Savior. Yet he still pressed on, knowing his fate, knowing of the hate and the jealousy and the anger that so many harbored against him, but always faithful to his calling. In our reading today, Jesus is rejected again by many people and in several different ways. They reject his person. They reject his message. They reject discipleship. Verse 51 in chapter 9 of St. Luke's account is viewed by many theologians as the major pivotal point in this gospel. It's where Jesus' ministry shifts from revelation to salvation, from epiphany to passion. Jesus had already revealed to his disciples who he was and what he had come to do. Now he sets out on the path that will take him to the cross. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. We all know what happens when God sets his face, don't we? When he sets his face against people, they are doomed to disaster and to destruction. When he makes his face shine upon us, when he lifts up his face, his countenance upon us, then we are very greatly blessed. Here the setting of Jesus' face is one of resolve. 
And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Rather than avoiding the Samaritans, as most of the Jews did, Jesus stride boldly into their territory. It's one of the many invasions of Jesus that Luke records in his gospel account, beginning with his cosmic invasion in the Incarnation. Here Jesus sends messengers on ahead of him into Samaria, not only to prepare accommodation such as lodging and food, but also to offer his message of repentance and hope and salvation. The Samaritans, though, reject Jesus and his message. Not only is Jesus a Galilean and a Jew, but he also intends to go to Jerusalem, the capital of Judea. The centuries-old animosities of ethnicity and religion between Samaritans and Jews are far stronger even than the opportunity to receive this great teacher and great healer whose fame had spread throughout the whole region. He may be great, the Samaritans probably thought, but he isn't one of us. James and John, indignant that these despised foreigners have insulted their rabbi, want to take revenge. Full of themselves as they often were, they allow their hurt pride and their self-righteous anger to overshadow Jesus' message. They want to call down heavenly fire to destroy these Samaritans. Perhaps they were recalling what Elijah had done centuries before to Samaritans who had rejected God's messenger and God's message. And yet, in expressing these thoughts, James and John are rejecting Jesus' message too. In spite of all that they'd seen and all that they'd heard, they still didn't comprehend the will of God and the mission of Jesus. Jesus is no doubt saddened by the Samaritans' rejection, but he doesn't stop to reason or to argue with them. He's not deterred or distracted. He doesn't reject or punish the Samaritans. Instead, Jesus rebukes James and John for going off message. Jesus had come to supply, to, to supply compassion and mercy, not to seek vengeance for sins. He came to be the suffering servant, not to be elevated to a lofty position. Jesus presses on. What James and John had failed to understand and what we ourselves sometimes forget that it is to reject Jesus and, and his message isn't going to necessarily result in punishment in the here and now. Many unbelievers will even prosper in this world, often making us, the faithful, jealous, frustrated. How awful, though, is these unbelievers' fate upon their deaths and for all eternity. There were others on the road that day as Jesus traveled along, too. Jesus speaks to a few of them in our text. To the first, a seemingly willing disciple who offers to follow Jesus wherever he might go, the Savior gives a warning. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus gives him the unvarnished truth about the life of discipleship. It will not always be easy. It will not always be pleasant. 
You may not have a place of safety or comfort or rest from your labors. As Christians, we will not be welcomed everywhere with open arms any more than the Lord Himself was. Perhaps Jesus' warning spooked the other two potential followers. The second one wanted to delay his service until after his father had died. The third wanted to bid farewell to his family first. To the second one, Jesus says, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus not only indicates that the work of the kingdom of God takes precedence over all of our other responsibilities, but also that we do not need to let the spiritually dead impede us from the work we have been given of bringing spiritual life to all who need it. To the third would-be disciple, Jesus combines some common wisdom with a warning about remaining focused. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's a simple fact that no one can effectively follow a straight path forward while he or she is looking backward. Any of you who have plowed a field or piloted a plane or conned a ship know full well, you must pick out a point in the distance or on the horizon or a bearing to a star or a constant setting on a compass if you want to steer a straight line. Even if you're just driving a car, you need to look out into the lane ahead of you a ways if you want to stay on course. Only those who look to goals who are outside of themselves, to the full and the final realization of the kingdom of God, will have the focus needed to live in Christ and to proclaim his message. Jesus also indicates both here and elsewhere that just as he gave up everything for us and for our salvation, we too must also be willing to give up everything for the sake of God's kingdom. This may cause us to become alienated and separated from friends and from family who will not accompany us on that journey of faith, that journey of service. Led by God the Holy Spirit, though, we do not cling to the desires of the flesh or to our worldly possessions. Instead, we shift our efforts and we devote our resources to the Lord's work. We follow Christ, carrying our crosses daily. These are hard things to think about. They're harder still to live out amidst all of the trials and temptations of life. It's not easy at all. And you may find yourself like those potential disciples that Jesus met on that road, wanting to pick and choose your own customized way of discipleship. So I might ask, what do you accept and reject about Jesus? About his message? About discipleship? Is your Jesus a fine ancient teacher of wisdom? A giver of timeless moral guidance? Is he a wonderful example of tolerant love and compassion, giving up his own livelihood to travel the countryside, offering forgiveness, healing, and encouragement to a fragile and hopeless world? Is he the pinnacle of human development, 
A man so in tune with himself that he was perfectly obedient to an objective ethical code and showing us then that we too could aspire to greatness. If your belief in Jesus ends there, or even if it only begins to wander in that direction, then you've fallen into Satan's trap. You will have become a victim of the worldly understanding of who Jesus is and what he does, which provides you no real hope and certainly gives you no salvation, no eternal life. Much of the world, especially the false faith that so many have come to accept as valid alternatives to the gospel of Christ, want a Jesus with whom they can come to terms. They want a Jesus who says things and does things that don't offend anyone. A Jesus who can be fully grasped and fully comprehended. Unfortunately, a Jesus like that does not have the authority to forgive your sins. A Jesus like that cannot quell or quench the wrath of a holy God that you and I have alienated with our sinful, miserable lives. A Jesus like that cannot die to save you, to give you eternal life. Only a Jesus who is both God and man can do that. The Jesus that must be given to us in faith or rejected in worldliness is the Jesus who says what He says and does what He does. There is no compromise. There is no reinterpretation, no spin to the sensitivities of modern man. No adjustment for the social or cultural setting. No softening of the truth for acceptability. There is no picking and choosing what people can and can't agree to or what they find palatable or unoffensive. We are not shopping for grocery brands or negotiating a deal on a new car, things in which we have choice and leverage. Rather, we're coming face to face with God's holy and perfect will and with God's inerrant word. And it is sometimes difficult for us to accept a message in a life in which we have no say other than the option of rejecting it. God came to us as the baby of Bethlehem and we shake our heads in wonder. He comes to us in His Word and we wrestle with its challenges and its complexities and its hard sayings. He is lifted up before us on a cross and we struggle to make any sense of it. God in water, in bread, in wine, in a book? Is it any wonder that he is rejected by so many as being unreasonable, incomprehensible? And how often do the doubts even creep into our own thinking? Does God really do things that way? Could he really forgive all my sins, even those that still embarrass me and terrify me? Could he truly mean that we're to place him above all other things in our lives? With all of these doubts, our rational minds reject Jesus. Our corrupted hearts reject his message too, just like the Samaritans, just like James and John, and just like most of Judea and Jerusalem would do in the months to come. But Jesus didn't give up on those Samaritans or on James and John, or on Judea, or on anyone else. 
In the same way, even when our hearts and our minds reject who Jesus is and what His message says, He does not reject us. He does not give up on you. He does not turn away, either from you or from that cross, that cross that saves you. Nor can we. We who are His elect people can never fully reject Him who has claimed us from all eternity. We were baptized into His death. We were bought at a steep, steep price. No one can snatch us out of the hand of our Lord. The Scriptures do not record what those three would-be disciples' final responses were to Jesus' invitation. But that's not what's really important for us. Even if they had finally rejected what was offered to them in discipleship, we who have been adopted as God's sons and daughters cannot do that. As St. Paul wrote, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Our discipleship then is not one of burden, not one of inconvenience. It is a burden of joy and freedom from the fear of sin and death through Christ's sacrifice for us. One of the key marks of this freedom is our willingness to follow Christ and to serve others. When we've been told that we must leave our worldly concerns behind in order to follow Christ and His commands, it can be very difficult for us to see how we can love our neighbor and love our family and how we can properly express that love. But this is only difficult if we choose to make it so. Jesus makes it very simple. If we follow Him first, if we trust in His death and His resurrection, then we will have the freedom both to serve Him and to love one another. It is only when we imprison ourselves in our earthly, sinful minds that we allow our jealousies and our worries and our desires to make us into sinful and selfish sinners rather than generous saints. When we reject the Savior, we would also reject the Creator and the Sanctifier. And so then we find it very easy to reject our fellow creatures. But Jesus did not reject who He was. He didn't reject what He was to proclaim. He didn't reject what He had to do. He was everything that we are not. Steadfast in His mission. Consistent in His message. Faithful to His calling, even unto death. We need Him as our Savior because we can never do alone what He has done. He alone has kept the commandments. He alone could set His face to Jerusalem, set His face to that cross, focused, undeterred. Unlike the Samaritans and James and John and all those other would-be disciples, Jesus was not distracted. He was determined to do those hard things at which we balk and from which we often turn away, even run away. He accepted the cost of following God's will. Thanks be to Him that He willingly put His hand to the plow and did not look back. Praise God that for your life and for your salvation, He set His face to Jerusalem.
in His holy name. Amen.